Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hey everyone, you're listening to Living the Dream. I'm Dave. I've, we've got a really special episode today. A uh, friend of the show and all-round good egg Shane has recorded a conversation with Jamie McCallum, who's a author and academic, and it's about global union federations. And this is a really interesting conversation which attempts to look at a concrete example of unions to organise globally. Is this what workers' solidarity looks like today? What's beneficial about it? What's problematic about it? It's super interesting. I'd really like to thank Shane and Jamie for the time that they've made to put this show together. I'm sure you'll appreciate their efforts. Hello, everyone. My name is Shane Reeside. I'm currently an organiser for the International Transport Workers' Federation, or ITF as it's called, a global union federation, or GUF, that unites workers in the transport industries from across over 145 countries. I'm based with a team of ITF organisers and campaigners on the top floor of the Maritime Union of Australia building on Sussex Street in Sydney. We're based there because not only is the MUA an affiliate of the ITF, the National General Secretary, Paddy Crumlin, is also currently serving as the ITF president one of the senior elected roles within the global union. I'm not, however, going to talk about the ITF in this podcast. I've invited researcher and activist Jamie McCullen to make this podcast in conversation with me about his research into these things called global union federations. What are they? Where did they come from? And what are the summer opportunities that drove them into being? And what opportunities did they create? To drill into these questions a little bit, we're going to talk about a global union federation called Uni Global and its campaign in the early to mid-2000s to win an agreement with global security multinational that many of you would have heard of, G4S. There is, of course, lots of working-class internationalism currently underway, driven by different political motivations and material conditions. We aren't going to talk about these things too broadly, but instead try and drill a bit more deeply into this specific example of an international labour campaign to get a feel of the rhythm, tactics, political possibilities and shortcomings that it throws out. So first, Jamie. Can you tell us a bit about where you are in the world and how you fit into this picture? Uh, My name is Jamie McCallum. I'm a sociologist at Middlebury College in Vermont. I live in a small town uh, sort of between uh, the the mountains in the middle of the state. There's no reason people from Australia would know where Vermont is. It's not really an important place, but it (laughs) it, it, it is the home of Bernie Sanders. The Labor Day rally... He comes to our local meetings, you know, so it's kind of like a very quaint, uh, sort of classical New England kind of old school place. And I work mostly on labor issues, uh, political economy, social theory, and political sociology. Um, And I've written, I've done some work on global and transnational union organizing that came out of my own work as an organizer, and then uh, recently I've been doing more work, more research, I guess, into like work, the history of work, 
The book that you've recently published, which is called Global Unions, Local Power, uh, and in that, uh, if I've read it correctly, you argue that we're witnessing an emergence of a new kind of labour transnationalism. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. As far as the new kind goes, if you look historically, there's a moment uh, like proletarian internationalism, where more or less the labor movement is, by definition, uh, international. And, um, you know, I think there are people who look to that point as sort of a heyday of, you know, workers, um, you know, workers of all countries unite. The example you use in your book is Marx's International Working Man's Association in the mid-19th century. Is that the period right. you're talking about? Yeah, that's the period I'm talking about, yeah. yeah. And then there's a transition, I think, to a period after the Second World War um, of more or less, like, international union diplomacy and uh, where the where nations and nation states factor larger in the imaginations of workers who are doing cross-border stuff. The historians that have written about this say that uh, the First World War, um, or both world wars in some ways, encouraged people to encourage workers to kill each other on uh, the battlefields based on national flags. And they weren't, and and this tended to... um, I don't know, decreased tendencies toward uh, internationalism. After the, after the Second World War, you know, there's a, there's a point when unions take up sort of a communist side or a non-communist side, and that, that axis becomes an important axis for how international union work is conducted. And then the stuff I'm writing about, more or less, is the stuff that comes after, I guess, the 80s, really, starts in the 80s, 80s and 90s, that um, transnationalism is more of a, uh, that workers are sort of in some ways once again encouraged to cooperate and coordinate campaigns across national borders in a way that doesn't merely represent their country, necessarily their country interests, or either a communist or a non-communist outlook. One of the contemporary manifestations of labour internationalism is the global union federations, uh, which are essentially international federations of national unions organised by industry. So, for example, we've got one that's called the Uni Global Union, which is an international federation of national service sector unions from many countries spanning both global north and global south economies. And through its affiliates, Uni claims to have about 20 million workers. Around about when did these guffs start to emerge? Uh, when did the guffs emerge? I think that, well, as I understand it, they emerged out of the uh, international trade secretariats, which I think are the product of, of the 80s, so the 70s or 80s, that the trade secretariats functioned as aid vehicles for unions in the global north to, to offer money and support and resources to unions in the global south. They, they both reorganized themselves slash changed their names to global union federations in, God, the early 2000s, I think. I don't think it was that long ago. Okay, so well and truly post-Cold War by this stage. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so currently, around about how many guffs are there and are all the global union federations more or less the same in form and function or is there a substantial difference between them? 
That's a good question and probably one that someone that works in Geneva or for a gov would be better position to answer. <laughs> I th think there's so my understanding is that there there was a period of, in which the gov's were more or less the same. My understanding is that probably around eight or ten years ago that began to change and that some began to take on a more like uh, active and organized approach um, or role, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think today the idea is that a couple of them, maybe four or five of them, have risen to be a little bit more involved. You know, it's weird that if you think about, like in, in the American context, the AFL-CIO is the main union body that people look to when they want some information or, or it's a, it's a, it is a source of activism, maybe not as much as people would like, but some. And that's, that's a national the, union federation, right? Yeah, it's a national umbrella union federation. Mm -hmm. But the, the global one, the ITUC, isn't really like that. Like people look toward the individual guffs when they want answer, questions answered or when they want action to happen. They just don't go through the umbrella the umbrella. Uh, organization as much as my understanding mm. and I think that's because the guffs have risen to be more autonomous and a little bit more activist uh, in the last 10 years and so when you say there's been four or five that have become more active and organized uh, what do you mean by that I mean I think that they are interested more or less in in growing and organizing workers rather than just some of the older strategies, which are winning global framework agreements, which it wasn't that long ago, which you can win a GFA without organizing workers. You could just negotiate it with, comp with a company. Okay, um, that's an interesting point you've raised. Can you actually tell us what a global framework agreement is? Yeah, so a global framework agreement is kind of like you know, what we used to call a code of conduct. So it's a signed agreement, I suppose, between um, a global union federation and a major company, sometimes a third party, that lays out a series of terms, conditions, and sort of protocol by which those two things will interact. So it's kind of um, like a collective agreement, but on a global scale. It's a collective agreement on a global scale. They're non-binding, um, and I think there's 115 of them now that are that are in, in you know inactive. When did the global unions or the international trade uh, secretariats start negotiating these global framework agreements? I think there was a, like a handful in the 80s. I think there was you know a handful then that began being signed that were more or less glad-handing, um, you know, relatively business-friendly agreements. I think the real um, agreements with teeth, and I mean teeth that could be enforceable or that workers really have something to do with are even, you know, far more recent, like the early 2000s or the, you know, 2005, 2006, around there. Okay. Um, do you want to describe what one of those uh, agreements are and the kinds of things that they do? Well, they tend to they tend to protect the rights of workers from uh, like main violations of what the ILO calls core labor standards, mm -hmm. which are let me see if I remember those non non discrimination at work, 
the right to organize. So it's kind of like, you know, non-forced labor. I mean, some of them are relatively, there's four of them. You know, no forced labor. Okay, we're not going to hire slaves. That's a pretty low bar. Mm. Um, and But the right to organize is one that was always sort of left off the table. And it's, you know, probably one of the most important ones. So I think those GFAs with teeth began to take more seriously trying to win a global agreement with the right to organize. And the campaign I wrote about was probably one of the first to do that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that campaign? That campaign, I think, was inspired more or less by, um, in, in the United States, by unions trying to organize security guards um, at some of the same buildings where they had already organized janitors in the Justice for Janitors movement. Okay. Uh, jan- you know, security guards said, hey, what about us? We want a union too. And unions said, great, let's do this. And um, it turned out to be very, very difficult. Um, European management, which was relatively well-behaved in Europe, um, you know, they were, they were organizing a lot of, there's a lot of European companies in the service sector in the United States. Mm-hmm. And they operate fairly well in Europe or fairly friendly comparatively to how they operate in the United States. And they were very viciously anti-union. And SCIU, who was organizing in the United States, couldn't really get a foothold. Mm. So, uh, you know, they try a few things. What do you do? Do you give up? That's one option. Um, And their option was to look to their partners in Europe where there actually was traction with the company. There was already unions in G4S Wackenhut. Mm-hmm. in Europe, in, 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 in uh, the UK especially. So they found partner unions and um, began organizing, uh, in some ways sending organizers out and partnering up with Uni in Geneva, the Global Union Federation that we were just talking about. And, um, and over the course of five years, more or less, forced the company eventually to submit to a global framework agreement in 2008 you know, and along the way, I managed to build pretty pretty interesting groups of organizing committees in South Africa, India, some parts of India, uh, some parts of Poland, the UK, some other parts of Europe. Um, and, and now, since then, since my book came out, um, the campaign has moved on to incorporate, to involve workers in South America and other uh, Latin American countries. Okay, so we've got a... Uh, a large multinational corporation called G4S Wackenhut. It's owned out of Europe. Um, an American union starts trying to organise workers who work for this company. It's finding it really difficult because the company is harshly anti-union, so they reach out to, in the first instance, unions in uh, Europe, particularly the UK, to start having some concurrent industrial campaigns and a joint, I guess, leverage or political campaign that tries to push the union, sorry, push the company to uh, to form some kind of agreement that covers workers in both sites. And then that, from there, the campaign spreads out and they start reaching out to unions in India, Poland, South Africa and other countries where the company is also active and directly employs security guards. Well, all these unions uh, in all of these different countries, South Africa, Poland, the US, the UK, bits of Europe, uh, et cetera, were they already affiliated to and a member of this international union called Uni? No. So that was one of the interesting things. So 
um, uh, American unions, as I'm sure you're aware, have a bad rap around the world, um, or at least not a great rap and uh, reputation, I should say. And um, so one of the struggles, first and foremost, was to build a coalition, which wasn't easy. I think, you know, it was easier in certain places, but um, it was difficult, I think, to find really willing partners who are, who are willing to coordinate a campaign in the way that they wanted to in, in India. South Africa, I think it was a little bit easier because those unions were more or less more oriented toward an, an organizing strategy mm-hmm. uh, than, than the other places. So so I, it was interesting to, find, to, to hear and see about ways that uni managed to do that, managed to build those coalitions. So by building, but, by building a coalition, you mean they went to these countries where they knew the company was operating, they met and found workers who were working for the company in these places, made contacts with the unions that represented those workers, and then started trying to get those unions to affiliate to uni and to build a campaign committee that allowed for all these unions and all these different places to campaign together at the same time. I think that's basically correct. What we've got then is workers in five different countries, in global north economies and global south economies, that are concurrently involved in some kind of organising campaign. What does that actually look like? Like, what what does being involved in an organising campaign mean? Keeping people on a sort of sort of campaign program, I think, was the hardest part. You know, we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to do this together, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, the coordination involved in that was pretty extraordinary. By the time I got done writing the book, I was fairly impressed by uni's leadership and their ability to do that. Okay. <clears throat> so were the workers in all these different places conducting uh, like a traditional kind of industrial campaign, like, you know, an escalating series of collective actions starting from meetings and leading up to and including strikes? Is that the kinds of activities where these workers are taking in these different places? I think in some places, you know, in South Africa, where the labor movement just has such a strong recent history, even though it had drifted more towards a, a, a weaker, more servicing orientation, I think part of the the strategy early on there was to get unions to sort of transition or adopt a more aggressive organizing mentality to really um, – to build membership in their union. And so that involved, ended up involving, I think, some of the standard issue practices, you know, um, one-on-one meetings and, and building committees and, and signing cards and all, and all that stuff. Mm. Um, and I, and th- there was a strike in South Africa. Uh, it wasn't really a strike related to this campaign. Um, but when SEIU got involved, there had just been or already was in process a strike of like, you know, half of the security industry throughout the country was on strike. It was very, very bloody. Um, you know, tens of people died or were killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part part of the security guards union's interest in this campaign was to figure out a way to work in a more a more organized way, I guess you could say, than, than, than they had been doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that partnership with um, uni and SEIU sort of helped to do that. In India, uh, by contrast, the work was different. Unions didn't have a history of organizing so much, and there was different issues there. You know, it's like 
you know, just, just like any other organizing campaign, it's about issues, whatever the issues on the ground. In India, they were different, um, so they had to do different different stuff there. And, and then what about in the UK and the US? What were workers doing in those places? In, in the UK, I don't really know. In the UK, they had an agreement already. It was fairly fairly strong, I think fairly stable. And my understanding is that the UK union uh, did not want to – or SAIU's position was that the, the UK union did not want to rock the boat as much and did not get involved in sort of an activist mode too much during the campaign. In the US, uh, I think that workers had been organizing and were organizing against G4S for most of that time even if it had sort of gone into abeyance uh, for a little bit while resources were being poured into the global stuff. Mm. I think SCIU found out early on that some sort of comprehensive strategy that involved a corporate campaign was going to be much more effective uh, if it involved workers in the developing world than if it involved workers in America. No one cares about poor workers in America, but people do care about – you know, racism against workers in the third world, and I mean shareholders when I say people. Mm-hmm. So I think their their strategy was to sort of tell the stories and narratives of those workers to pressure shareholders to sort of do the right thing, which was divest. Okay. You just uh, brought in this idea of uh, SEIU and uni and the other unions involved. Adopting a corporate campaign, uh, which uh, often gets called a comprehensive campaign. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what a corporate campaign or a comprehensive campaign actually is? Yeah. Well, there are people who will go to the mat by just saying there's a difference between a corporate campaign and a comprehensive campaign. Right. And I think they got all they got pissed off at me because I use them interchangeably. Uh-huh. Even though I, I actually don't think I did, but the um, I think the general line is that a corporate campaign uh, is the um, strategy by which you know unions find leverage points that are far from the the point of production, far from the so-called factory floor, in order to pressure a company to um, capitulate to a series of demands based upon threats or perceived threats to their bottom line. So it involves um, investor strategies to get investors to divest from such and such company. It involves smearing them in the press. It involves generally research-heavy campaigns that look into their potential illegal financial records and exposing them. All these kinds of things to basically force a company to capitulate that doesn't involve necessarily organizing workers. And a comprehensive campaign involves all that plus organizing workers. Okay. And I think the G4S campaign was a pretty decent example of a comprehensive campaign. Okay. So you've got workers in all the different countries that we've been talking about, all of whom work for G4S, all of whom uh, in different ways according to the country that we're talking about, according to the situation on the ground in that country, are organizing and probably conducting what you'd understand as a fairly traditional industrial campaign at the point of production on the shop floor. Uh, at the same time, uh, you've got a, a campaign that seeks to identify uh, the contingent financial and political relationships, such as shareholders, such as other government regulatory loopholes that the company has to jump through, uh, and seek to put pressure on the company through those activities. 
in such a way that brings the company to the table uh, and such a way that they're willing to sign an agreement with the union. That's right. Yeah. And so for the uni campaign with G4S, uh, what were the kinds of things that they were doing to target the corporate? to target the corporation directly? So there's a couple things. Uh, they brought workers to their shareholder meetings mm-hmm. um, and sort in, in the UK, like workers from all over that had, that had been um, suffering from certain issues. Um, I remember in 2006, I think it was mostly like sort of racist uh, treatment from managers in, in, in different African countries. Um, and uh, tries and tried to sort of tell those stories at the shareholder meetings to catch the eye of shareholders. They convinced certain European investors that the company was either a bad player or a poor investment, and convinced them one major one to divest. Um, they targeted FIFA and some of their large sporting event, saying that they should use union uh, union security guards rather than. Um, G4S security guards to try to get them to lose contracts, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were certain things that sort of high-level media and legal and financial actions that the union took to, to try to expose the company as a bad actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of those things worked, some of them didn't. Um, but, you know, in, in the end, I think the, 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 the corporate campaign part was the thing that the company most objected to. They, they felt it was something like, you know, blackmail or something probably. And so what was the worker organizing pieces that were happening at the same time? Uh, they were really interesting. In um, They were trying to build membership in the security guard unions in different places. They put together a coalition of security guard unions in in India, which really was maybe one of the first of its kind unions, a, a group of unions who were from different and often competing political traditions in in India, working together, pieced together, you know, local committees of workers in various places. It wasn't really until after the agreement was signed that membership really began to increase because of the neutrality clause. Um, but during that time, they were sort of building, I guess you would call them militant minorities mm-hmm. in different places. And so... Through all this industrial activity on the ground in different countries, through the corporate campaigns, eventually Uni signs an agreement uh, with G4S. Um, what, what's contained in the agreement? Um, the agreement respects all the, the main ILO conventions, and as we talked about before, and, um, and then commits that... And most importantly, it commits the company to remain neutral in the face of an organizing drive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- this and this, I think, probably is largely the influence of the Americans because this is really an American uh, problem. I mean, probably the number one reason the workers, that union density is so low in America is because workers can't really exercise their right to join a union because the company fight so hard and there's so many laws protecting the company to fight. So once you take the employer out of the equation a little bit, workers generally choose to go union. And so that was a really big win. It was a really big sticking point for a long time, but eventually they won it. And there was also some sort of phase in agreement where they said, okay, we're, we're going to phase in the agreement here and here for these two years. Then 
two years later we'll phase it in here and here so we, we don't do it all at once because it was a pretty big scope mm -hmm. so the agreement doesn't directly address the wages and conditions of workers in all these different places it's more about the relationship between the company and the union that's my understanding. I don't think there was any real wage and hour discussions about, you know, such and such workers here need this raise or need this. Maybe there was some, you know, there were some things that were worked out along the way to saying, you know, this is a condition of blah, blah, blah. But mostly it was, as you said, uh, uh, how are we going to work together? We'll set out the terms of terms of engagement. So it's, I guess it's a little bit different to how some domestic collective agreements function which is they codify the wages and conditions of workers within a particular company or a particular industry it's more like it actually enlarges the space within which labor organizing can occur inside a particular company is that a fair characterization that's that's exactly right mm -hmm. so it's like move move over so we can organize uh-huh so you sort of that neutralizing the companies, uh, neutralizing the company's attacks against the union, creating the space for workers to be able to come together. So, if that's what the agreement achieves, how then do workers in different places take advantage of that? And then, I guess, a secondary question is, how is that agreement then implemented? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there were, um, you know, there's tons of agreements. And most of them probably aren't that useful to ordinary workers. And most of them, you know, by far, most workers probably have no idea that their workplace even has a global agreement at it. And it's a really a credit to this campaign and its leaders and its you know, most active members that, um, that organizing was happening the whole time. And so that really is the most, I think, the most important condition to building in the agreement, having some success and some teeth. So after it was won, signed off on, they, you know, some unions really took it and ran. In South Africa, um, they used that to gain access to work sites and to organize workers who were previously afraid of management interference. Um, and union membership in, in Satawu, their, their affiliate union in Johannesburg and Cape Town really exploded. In India, they used the agreement to, to win other things like a uh, minimum wage, um, identification cards, something that allowed you to get a bank account. Like uh, there were more almost like, I don't want to say civil rights, but it was a little bit, it was a little bit less about building membership and more about increasing the respectability of, of a security guard in, in, at, at his or her job. Um, I read really different accounts of the Indian case, some of which said membership really exploded. Some and then when I went there, it seemed to be the case that those numbers weren't as accurate as we originally thought. Um, it's just a much more chaotic situation. Mm. In, um, in the United States, the agreement created a clear path to union recognition for workers in nine major cities. And those workers began joining uh, SCIU at that time. Um, they began organizing campaigns again in the States. And when they were neutralized, when the company was neutral, um, you know, they were, it was, it was much, much more fruitful. Perhaps not so much in the case of uh, security guards, although it's still relevant because uh, for security guards, obviously the work is necessarily either in a global south economy or in a global north economy. But 
there's been a lot written and a lot of discussion about whether or not actually the interests of global north workers and global south workers are in common, particularly if they work for the same corporation. So, uh, you know, over the development of neoliberal capitalism in the latter half of the 20th century, there was an argument that we would see a flattening of the global working class, that conditions in the global south economies through the process of competitive advantage, uh, competitive advantage and economic growth would flatten out. Um, but rather than that happening, what we've actually seen is a kind of entrenchment of polarisation between global south economies and global north ones where the mines of Africa and the vast factories in Asia and America is producing commodities and is, uh, that are then shipped to the global north economies where they're consumed by working class people in those places. Um, and it seems as though the way the global economy is now structured is the continuation of a long colonial pattern of, you know, global north working classes being simultaneously exploited by capital and also exploiting others below them on the racial and economic uh, global hierarchy. And I'm wondering whether it's possible for these kinds of campaigns to actually be some kind of meaningful cross-border solidarity between uh, global working classes in uh, sorry working classes in global north and global south economies, or whether actually it's a kind of neo-colonialism where the interests of unions in the global north uh, are really what drive it, and then the wages of workers in those economies are substantially benefited but the workers in say i don't know in the case of the uni campaign india south africa etc aren't meaningfully lifted predominantly yeah yeah that's a great question which is like potentially an entirely other book um to write on this issue but um it's really important and i don't have an easy answer i think that there's there was some cynicism and skepticism that yeah, really, aren't these campaigns just about utilizing the stories and the bodies of workers in the, in the developing world to benefit campaigns in the global north? And in fact, I mean, one of the main selling points of the campaign for American workers was like, look, this actually will boomerang back to you. And that's why you should support it, should support it, not as a principled call to solidarity to your brothers in another country, but because ultimately we can't win here until we win over there. And, and um, so I think there's like uh, – but, but ultimately I don't think it's true. I don't think that the cynical interpretation of you know, is, really, is really actually what's happening. It's not that unions of the global north are using – are sort of using or exploiting these campaigns to benefit themselves ultimately. It's just, it's, it's too difficult and too expensive and too resource intensive to really go through that in order to do it. Um, and I just, I just don't believe that, that they, that they would. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at what happened in some of the, there's a few other campaigns too. There's a campaign, um, well, also if you look at the campaigns earlier in the nineties of, workers of unions to organize like codes of conduct and boycott campaigns with, with, with Central American um, maquiladora workers. Those campaigns ultimately, I think, probably weren't as successful as a lot of organizers hoped. Um, but nonetheless, they were, they were certainly principled and genuine, authentic attempts to build solidarity across borders, not just so that American American unions get 
get a better deal. Right. Um, I don't about the other part you said. I think you're right in that the original feeling about a flattening world obviously didn't really happen. Um, if anything, it's much more spiky now. And the 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 importance of the north south divide, I think, has one that has been like the crux of the matter for anyone studying globalization for for a while now. And I think whereas people were at first very optimistic and a little Pollyannish about the erasure of that divide, people are coming around to the idea that actually the divide is anything but erased. If anything, it's more it's more solidified, and and unions have to really, you know, will have to learn to deal with that problem. It's not an easy one, but I think they're trying to figure it out. Some of them. Do you actually think that uh, the emergence, the, the global union federations, and the union practice that they enable? Do you reckon it's rooted in any kind of genuine global class analysis, or do you think it's just a kind of opportunistic methodology? By which I mean, you know, unions in different places going, oh, if we work together, we might be able to win something immediately, like a global framework agreement. Or uh, is there some kind of global class analysis that is able to situate these kinds of struggles as some kind of more long-term strategy for building cross-border solidarity that has the possibility for organising people beyond the kind of economic divides we find ourselves in? Yeah, I think that <laughs> that's a good question. I think that the number of like vulgar Marxists in charge of global union federations is very small, <laughs> and I and I think that they're their hope for a for a global, you know, for a global class, like to fulfill the promise of the international, so to speak, isn't isn't really what's going on. I think they see a pragmatic um, reason to to collaborate. That's not to say that anyone is that a lot of people aren't committed leftists who are who would be interested in who you know privately see the importance of a global class analysis. And certainly those things probably come to play at certain parts during the, G, the G4S campaign, just because of the kinds of people who were involved with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, I think that even those people, at the end of the day, are most moved to action by the potential for there to be a pragmatic co- point of collaboration. Mm. So in a sense, it's the the vertical uh, consolidation of corporate actors, basically big uh, corporations that are buying up industries in multiple countries at the same time and operating them simultaneously. That provides an opportunity and a momentum for workers in those different countries to work together. Uh, and it's that opportunity that's really driving the momentum of the global union practice rather than some kind of politicised project about a global class struggle, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I think that there's that classic paradox or contradiction, whatever you want to call it, that, like, you know, people have picked up on by now that there's a way in which neoliberal globalization ended up organising the the world economy in such a way that it provided certain kinds of built-in opportunities uh, or avenues for this kind of organizing to, to actually happen. Um, I think that, that that is true. It's also been overstated and overemphasized to some extent, those opportunities. But nonetheless, there is kind of a structural thing that happened that you know unions have not been 
ignorant of and have tried when they can to take advantage of it. Mm. So that's interesting, that point, actually, because when it's something like security guards, where you've got security guards in this country or security guards in that country, they're necessarily located in place. So you need uh, – so working classes aren't directly – in competition with each other in the same way perhaps as an industry like the textiles manufacturing industry where the working classes of the global north economy kind of are directly materially in competition with workers in a global south economy where it's much, much cheaper to build a textiles factory in Bangladesh or Cambodia than it is to build it in the US or Australia. Uh, it's very cheap to move a textiles factory to one of those places. And so what we've seen is that capital moves uh, to those global south economies. And then subsequently, so the, I guess that was happening in the 80s and 90s, and then sub- subsequently it's actually moved inside global south economies to ever poorer ones as labour conditions rise. In those industries where there perhaps is a material competition between different working classes, how would a global union federation deal with that kind of tension um i don't know but the the situation you described is really it's a pretty accurate i think interpretation of the scenario they find themselves i mean i think there's a baseline thing in which um workers who are part of a movement and a part of an organization and an institution with resources and leaders and some power are better than those workers without those things. Um, So in that sense, it's useful. As far as the geography stuff goes, I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the, probably the, the most interesting scholars that, that have been, that have written about transnational labor stuff have been, have been labor geographers because the place based nature of, of work provides such an interesting little conundrum, um, because as you said, work you know security guards in New Jersey and New Delhi are not in competition with each other, mm. like auto workers are. You can't outsource security. I mean, yet they haven't figured a way to outsource security guards, mm. so you have to have them. So in that sense, whereas some people would say, well, then, um, you know, then it then it doesn't matter. Then then it's harder because there's not that structural built in sort of competition, in some ways it does provide other other opportunities because you have to have them. So there's a way in which this, um, you know, infrastructure projects in the developing world or anywhere really need a fair amount of security guards. Mm. And if, 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 those, if those security guards can um, benefit from you know, their, you know, so-called brothers and sisters in other places, uh, because they've already done the hard work to organize a global frame agreement. Well, then that really, you know, that really, that really matters. So uh, you've got the question of what happens where workers in different economies are in competition with each other. But if you set that aside for a second and take uh, take an industry where they're not, like security and these other examples as well, uh, you still have a situation where workers uh, or a collective of workers in a global south economy, take India for example, have in every identifiable way less power than a group of workers and their union in a global north economy. So 
you know, it's <coughs> for uh, union officials at the SEIU or an equivalent Australian union, they have uh, almost indescribably high access to uh, material resources that they're able to use personally just through their wages and also uh, organisationally. And then in addition to that, just as individuals by virtue of their passports, I mean, they're almost able, you know, people like me, almost able to just flit across the surface of the world wherever I want, whereas the people that are, say, working in India and are part of that working class and participating in that union, they don't have anywhere near the resources that the unions in the global north do. They don't have anywhere near... Uh, the social global capital that comes along with that, they don't have access to the same kinds of passports that give them entrance to any country on earth whenever they want it. How do those kinds of power disparities play out inside these campaigns? Um, say that. Say the power differentials because workers are... Just your, your subjectivity as a worker in India, a working-class person, or a union official in India... Uh, you're going to have manifestly less power than the equivalent person working for a union in a global north economy, say the US, Europe or Australia. How do those vast power differentials play out inside this kind of campaign, even where you don't have the workers in the different economies competing with each other? There's like a macro, I hate, to, I hate to use these terms, but there's like a macro and micro answer to that. I mean, there's obviously ways in which... Um, in which those power differentials play out in sort of an obvious way in which like richer, whiter, more resourced people tend to have a lot of clout and a lot of, and they have access to information and they have access to policymakers who listen to them and they have um, technology and whatever else needs that, that are easier met. And therefore, they tend to carry more status and more clout and more weight and are more easier to move their program. Um, at the same time, I think that there, there actually is a fairly, like, I, we should give credit to the people who recognize that local labor leaders really are often in the best position to understand what's going on with their membership. And that, that, um, that knowledge gives them a certain degree of power. And I think that that, that knowledge of their local situation in campaigns like, like, like the G4S one was really, was really important. And uni actually put a lot of trust, faith, and respect in their affiliate members and leaders. Mm. Um, the, uh, there, were, there were ways in which the differentials played out that are more Ugly, I guess you could say. I mean, it, it was my understanding that a lot of union organizers in India, for example, did not like the fact that they were working with um, female union leaders from other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, security guarding is a male-dominated field, mostly everywhere, but also in India. Um, uh, there was a fair amount of sexism and involved in that in that sort of calculation and uh but nonetheless it was it was there i think i think there was a skepticism and a cynicism um against against women even women from more powerful places that they were capable um organizers mm. and i think this that provided some problem so there were all these ways some of which were very micro interactions that these different dynamics of people from different countries really played out and one lesson from that i think is that 
if all labor organizing requires a degree of, you know, basically a degree of identity politics, the degree of building a whole out of some coherent, disparate mess of people, global union organizing requires it even more because people are from literally different, like different places, geographically, culturally, linguistically, economically, and putting those people together and sort of setting aside your differences for the moment and focusing on what matters in common is, is not easy, but is really essential. Hmm. Do you think that genuinely member-led collective workers' organizations could participate in a global campaign like the ones we're discussing without dissipating their organizational integrity? Or do you think it's inevitable that global union federations uh, either require a level of undemocratic union bureaucracy for those unions to participate or they... Through, or through participation in global union federations, that level of union bureaucracy emerges in unions that perhaps didn't already have them. Uh, that's a, that's a, a good question or a couple of good questions. Um, uh, I think that, uh, I, I don't know. I feel like I've been doing, it, I've been in and out of the sort of like global activist world for since I was, you know, young, like in my, you know, early twenties, um, with the global justice movement in the United States. And I think that the evidence points toward the idea that like a leaderless or a relatively more grassroots global movement, um, is very, very, very difficult to challenge power in any real conceivable way. And I guess I've always been, or I've, I've come to be a much more, a much more interested in large institutions. Um, when you said undemocratic bureaucracy, I think that that's obviously a red flag. Like no one thinks that's a good idea. However, <laughs> however, uh, democratic bureaucracy, uh, which I think there is such a thing, um, it maybe is more to the point. I mean, I think there's a way in which there are grassroots campaigns that are doing stuff. For example, in, in France, I sort of work off and on with a group called React, which is a fairly grassroots campaign started by ordinary Parisian activists and grad students and labor people who have been building campaigns with um, uh, workers throughout uh, French-speaking Africa and some parts of China and other parts of Asia. And they've been doing, like, amazing amazing grassroots organizing work without much in the way of resources, clout, or institutional support. It's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Um, and they've managed to work with larger organizations like Uni, off and on. Um, so I think that example is one in which um, you know, a grassroots group does conduct a really interesting transnational campaign. But ultimately, I think that for, on the scale of something that happened with G4S, if, we, if you think it's a success, and, and I do, then that is really going to take larger, probably larger institutions with a more entrenched um, bureaucratic leadership, at least for now. I don't think we have a working model for how a more grassroots group succeeds at that level without that. Why? Why did, why did the uni need that, do you think? Well, I mean, how do you coordinate? How do ordinary people who work a nine-to-five job and deal with all the complications that come through in life just with that, also coordinate 
transnational global campaigns between workers that don't speak the same language and have vastly different economic realities without there being some sort of people, a group of people whose sole responsibility is to keep tabs on what everybody's doing and to make sure they're all on the same page and that they stay on the same page. Mm. I think that like the leadership question really is about not about directing people as to what to do, but making sure people are working together. And that it just, for me, right now, with this, on, a, on a campaign that scale, that requires um, some sort of, you know, uh, well-trained and uh, intelligent, strategic group of leaders. Um, you know, I worked a lot with campaigns doing Central American solidarity work in sweatshops. The you know, United Students Against Sweatshops started when I was in college. I was at their very first meeting. And... Um, and that was there was a lot of grassroots activism involved in that campaigns. And frankly, you know, the hindsight being what it was, we spent a lot of time just losing mm. and banging our heads against the wall. And that's not to say I don't have hope that such a, a more grassroots movement would happen. I think React is just one example of what, what it might look like. But I think to do campaigns at a really big scale right now at this point, there I'm sort of more on the let's have an institution side. Mm -hmm. And uh, where do you imagine from here the Global Union Federation is going to go? So if it's the mid-2000s, we see Global Union Federation start to develop networks of unions that have the capacity to actually start winning global framework agreements that mean something. Um, uh, and since then, I presume there's been some you know, good examples and bad examples of that's happening, but it's still pretty new stuff, right? So where do you see those global union federations going and where do you see broader trends in labor internationalism going? So I don't know. It's a pretty tough question. So, for example, in the – in the my understanding is that uh, since 2013 or something, SCIU – uh, actually uh, reduced um, its global staff and pulled back on some of its commitments to global organizing. Um, and that is the largest affiliate of uni. Mm. Um, so it has implications for what uni is able to do, especially with in this, especially with in security guard campaigns at the very least. Um, you know, I've heard of a few other global campaigns, the one against Walmart, for example, um, which sort of got retrenched when it became clear that it probably, you know, it was just going to be too daunting of a task at that moment. So I think there's some ways in which we've actually seen unions, some, some, some of the major American affiliates of the GUFs in Europe pull back from some global work. Mm. Uh, and um, I also think that the situation we have in America right now means that unions will inordinately have to focus more internally um, and that looking toward looking transnationally and globally um, might be harder given the threat of Trump. That's um, interesting. So 
if the global union campaigns uh, emerged out of a perceived opportunity to actually constrain the discretionary power of international capital within particular industries, and that was why they were pursued in the first place. It was not because it wasn't driven by an ideological interest in transnationalism necessarily, but in it being an opportunity. Why is what's happening with Trump now curtailing the possibility or perceived possibility of constraining capital using transnational campaigns? Well, to be honest, I don't know that it is. But I imagine that um, that uh, Trump is such a disaster for American unions. I mean, it's the it's the disaster, you know, it's it's just it's it's incredible. How, what a disaster it is. So, I mean, we could, you know, if if certain laws go through, work their way through the Supreme Court um, in the United States in the next two or three years, it would decimate, it could decimate public sector union membership. And that's all we got left, more or less. Um, and then you're looking at, you know, you're looking at half or a third of the union membership that we have now, which is already decimated. So in that context, then you've got no, you've got no unions and you've got no unions to conduct, conduct global campaigns. So unless American unions figure out how to fight against Trump, well, there's no, there's no way they're going to be fighting around the world doing, you know, ex- relatively expensive resource intensive campaigns. Mm. Now, that being said, I don't actually, you know, because I'm not, I don't. I, I haven't called a union in the last eight, a year and said, "Hey, uh, how are you reacting to Trump at the global level?" Because you know, I just don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But I think it's. But it, it's a, there's a theory out there that it's possible. Um, I I also think that the opposite is possible. That there are certain um, there are certain ex- exemplary campaigns that happened and are happening happening that would potentially um, encourage more transnational collaboration, not less. And if you hang around union offices uh, more and more, you do get the sense that a global or at least a, like an international um, focus is, is no longer considered crazy. It's considered, you know, uh, sound, relatively reasonable thing to, to consider doing. Mm. And I think that, that change in the last 10, 15 years is a really big one. And if that continues, well, then we'll see more We'll see more transnationalism. I've kept you on the line for ages now, uh, Jamie. Is there anything uh, that you would like to shoot at us as a parting, parting volley for the conversation? I guess the only other thing I would say is that uh, it's my understanding that the um, you know global union campaigns, as big a scope as they are tend to require comparatively few people to run them. Um, given, you know, if union has, I mean, 20 million members, and a, a global agreement in one company covers half a million people, well, it's like that's, that's an incredible ratio. And there is a way in which I think the codes of conduct strategy, generally speaking, might be a more interesting direction for labor to go. Um, and there's stuff I think that even domestic organizing can learn from that that possibility if if um, traditional organizing uh, is becoming less and less possible, effective, likely because of 
the legal context or the political context where people are, that other modes of comprehensive and corporate campaigning that win things like codes of conduct and, G and GFAs may actually be really useful everywhere, not just at the global level. So there, there, there is the possibility, I think, that some uh, you know, local or national unions will, will, will learn something from the global stuff, not just the other way around. Thanks for your time, Jamie. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for talking. It's pretty interesting.